You know, my conclusion from all this is that we need greatness with a small g. We need presidents who are good, but not good in the mundane sense. That they're good at what they do. They're competent. They have experience. We need good presidents in the sense that they're morally good. They're able to keep their demons under control, their personal vendettas, their pettiness under control. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Franz Cecilia. On today's episode, we will be discussing American leadership. Specifically, we're going to have a conversation about whether the United States can still produce and whether it even needs great leaders to tackle the challenges of the evolving international system. Joining us to help us answer some of these questions is Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and author of The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Aaron. Uh, it's a pleasure for us to be here with you. In 2014, you wrote The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. Given the state of American foreign policy in the 21st century, I wanted to talk with you about the subject of leaders and presidents and how much they matter at the end of the day. That said, one of the main points that you have been making since the book came, book came out is that Americans need to get over their addiction to searching for great presidents and and leaders. First, why do you think we seek, seek those great leaders and presidents? Well, yeah, I think it's human nature, frankly. Um, there's a, a thirst for leadership, even in the academic community, the, the International Leadership Association, I think, defines almost 1,500 programs in leadership around the country. John, for all, for, for all I know, Johns Hopkins has a program that deals with leadership as well. Um, it, it's quite natural, particularly during times of crisis and tension, that we seek out um, those who we judge to be um, well, superior in the sense that they know how to get us out of difficult situations, and they, they, have, and they have the experience and character um, to do so. Um, but I think in the end, uh, two things. Number one, I think we misunderstand how leaders lead, certainly in terms of American politics. And number two, I think if you look around, uh, it's a pretty depressing picture. We are we lead in so many fields, and we define greatness in so many fields, in sports, in the arts, in music. Um, we, we clearly, I think, have more Nobel, Peace Prize, uh, Nobel Prizes than any other national polity in the world. And yet when it comes to politics, there's this enormous uh, deficit of leadership. It exists on the world stage, but um, I think no more is that, nowhere is the sense of, of um, deficit more acute uh, than in the United States. With respect to the presidency, I think part of the problem is the presidency is an implausible, impossible job to begin with. Aaron Sorkin, who produced that great dramatic rendition of the presidency, the one we'd all like to see, I, I suspect, West Wing, define the White House um, as the greatest world's greatest home court advantage. And in many respects, it is. Presidents have enormous power, but they also have and, and govern under extraordinary constraint. And that's partly because politics is complex and contingent and depends on so many factors beyond any human's capacity control. But friends, it's also a, a function of the nature of our political system, because the founders 
in their infinite wisdom, uh, created a political system that was designed to prevent the accretion of power by any single human. I mean, they feared the royal governors. They feared Britain and the king from, from whom in which they ultimately sought their independence. And as a consequence, and they feared great men. Uh, Franklin talks about the, the problems of great men, even though I'm sure he and others at the time um, considered themselves great. Um, they created a system which in many respects was an open invitation to struggle. Three branches of government of shared and separate, separated powers, which virtually ensured that uh, there would be, to a, to a large degree, a, an avoidance uh, and constraints on concentration of power. Now, it, is ha it has happened in our political system for good or for ill, but it's extremely difficult to govern in the, in the sort of structure that the founders created. And that's one of the reasons that the presidency um, is, in many respects, overrated. And we look to our presidents for things that are, are impossible to, uh, to achieve. And that, I think, is the, the predicament of, of the modern presidency. Tremendous power in theory and also in practice. But to use that power, to concentrate it, to actually create um, transformative change in this political culture is very difficult and very rare. And that's why I argue in the book that greatness, true greatness in the presidency is rare. And and why, why is it better counterproductive to have this higher emphasis placed on finding the next great leader? Well, I mean, I think that, again, you know, it's primordial. The mythologists will tell you that people search out heroes during times of stress and tension. Some of the greatest literature of all time is based on these heroic journeys. Uh, Joseph Campbell made an entire career on, on examining the notion of the hero and, and, and the quest. So I think, again, we personalize our presidents. We insist on, on in, it's a paradox in a way. We want great presidents, but we want to, um, I guess, think about them and relate to them in ways that are quite common. We're fascinated by a president's family, by, by the first lady. We're fascinated by presidential pets. The obsessiveness with following the president um, in, a, 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 as a kind of ordinary person um, who we judged, given the fact that we vote for them, to be better than ourselves in order to lead us, uh, creates a sort of personalized view of the presidency, which I think in many respects humanizes the president, but it also makes him or one day her um, a, a kind of mortal figure. And the um, I think it was de Gaulle who said that that one of the elements of greatness is is the mysteries of of, of power is retaining a certain amount of detachment, um, which leads to a sense of awe and and power um, of the great man, um, and one day the great woman, I suppose, uh, I would hope. Um, but that also creates a certain amount of vulnerability. I mean, presidents are exposed um, to the media with all their flaws and their imperfections. And these days, the intrusive media um, 
you know, goes beyond anything that the traditional presidency um, experienced. You know, there were times in our past when, <clears throat> take the example of Franklin Roosevelt, who uh, suffered from poliomyelitis from polio uh, and who governed um, from a wheelchair, which is, which is an extraordinary fact when you think about the language of our politics. Expressions like, what do you stand for? Or he or she stands for this. I mean, Roosevelt could not stand unassisted or, or uh, un unaccompanied um, and still managed to convey uh, a, um, a sense of great power and great influence um, from the wheelchair. But it was part then of a sort of media presidential conspiracy. There are only a handful of photographs of Roosevelt in a wheelchair available at the Hyde Park Library. And the media, in a, in a way, um, helped to nurture the fact uh, that, that the president's physical condition was much, was much worse than most people imagined. They didn't photograph him being carried, uh, some often through large windows when there were no doors available. And there was one famous episode in um, uh, after his second reelection, uh, when in fact a period at Franklin Field in Philadelphia uh, to give a speech as he was proceeding up to the podium on, with, with his presidential braces accompanied by the Secret Service, the right brace crumbled and his speech text um, just fluttered to the ground. Almost 100,000 people witnessed that. And uh, of, of a president whose fall was broken by his son James and by the Secret Service, but not a word of that was reported the next day in the in in the press. That would never happen today. Um, so presidents, in that respect, uh, the mysteries of greatness have been stripped away, uh, and um, there's very little opacity left. Um, in, in the personal lives of these individuals, the way we cover them. And how does this emphasis that we Americans place on our presidents and how does this personalized view that we place on our presidents being great, perhaps lead them to misread what we actually want them to focus on, especially in foreign policy matters? How does this uh, search for greatness affect the way that presidents themselves end up acting in office? Well, that's a very good question, and uh, I, I would argue to you that the three undeniably greatest presidents, uh, George Washington in the 18th century, Abraham Lincoln in the 19th, and, and Franklin Roosevelt in the 20th, all understood their power and their influence, but had a measure of balance, self-control, and today we would use the word emotional intelligence that kept their demons um, and... Um, the, uh, the less attractive forces of their personality under control. I think you, you can see, and, and by, by and large, I mean, Richard Nixon clearly was an exception. Um, I mean, he, he undermined the very constitution that he was pledged to accept. But even Nixon carried himself with a certain measure of, of balance and decorum with respect to understanding that he was the, the most powerful man in the world, you've seen um, the consequences and the results of a presidency when in fact there are no breaks, there are no constraints, and individuals uh, are motivated by their own sense of power, 
uh, ambition and political interest untethered from what you would expect and would hope would be the greater good uh, and, and broader purpose of the American experiment. And I think the last four years of the Trump presidency uh, has um, emphasized in the extreme what happens when, in fact, the president allows that sense of power and greatness, paradoxically, perhaps driven by insecurity, but also driven by a profound sense of entitlement, uh, that, in fact, the president uh, is the president and that that individual is above the law. It's a uh, above the law, above um, tradition, uh, above the Constitution and, ab and above con uh, uh, con all constraints. It's a cautionary tale. And it's the it's the sort of constraints that the founders hope to lay down and imbue with in our political class and in the Constitution to prevent um, the the uh, aggregation of power, consolidation of power, to be used for personal gain. Um, we really haven't had, uh, as you look back on the presidency and our presidents, uh, a, a president who has allowed that sense of greatness and power to... Um, to fundamentally skew the way they look at the world and at their own ambitions. Uh, it took several hundred years, 200 plus years of the Republic to produce the circumstances for such an individual. And again, I think it's a, it, 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 it's a cautionary tale um, and it shows in many respects the vulnerability and fragility of, of, uh, of the democratic system, the Republic, Republican system uh, that the founders created. Aaron, one of the things that I found fascinating in your book is the concept of the three C's of presidential greatness. In other words, the interplay between crises, character, and capacity. So what is their importance and why does combining them usually yield great leaders? Well, I needed a, a way, uh, and I, I thought I had found it, in sort of summarizing what, separ what separated um, the undeniably great presidents, the, the three presidents that journalists, historians, uh, and even uh, politicians might agree. And remember, evaluating the presidency takes time. It can't be done within a year or two, four, even a decade after the um president leads office. But what was the magic combination that allowed, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that allowed the undeniables to uh, to do what they did? And in essence, just to, to shorthand, what is it that they did do? Well, the three undeniables, Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, um, ended up tackling um, and shepherding the nation through the three greatest crises that the Republic has faced. Um, the problem of building a government with the great powers, uh, the French, the British, the Spanish in our own backyard during the late 18th century, and actually creating the institutions. I mean, Washington had no precedent. Uh, there was no convention. He had, he had to make all of this up, uh, surrounded, of course, as he was by a talented team of advisors that included Jefferson and Hamilton. Uh, and others, uh, Lincoln, who confronted perhaps the greatest trauma of any nation, which is civil war, uh, shepherding the nation um, 
uh, on the on the battlefield after going through a series of generals Lincoln had very little military experience when he was smart he had phenomenal judgment until he finally came upon Grant uh, and, 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 and Sherman. And then FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, who served almost four complete terms, um, shepherding the nation through the Great Depression, the worst economic crisis that we've had with all of its social implications. Uh, and then, of course, meeting the challenge of the Second World War, the only war, I might add, that left America stronger at home and uh, with more influence abroad. Um, out of these crises, which required incredible combinations of character uh, to generate hope and confidence and not to lose self-control, uh, plus capacity, the idea that you can actually take the crisis in a transactional way and mold and shape it and extract from the crises enduring transformative change. And all three did that. Um, all three were transactional, great transactional leaders and great transformational leaders. And that's why I think with all their flaws and imperfections, and they all had them. In Washington uh, was an enslaver and not a particularly kind one. Um, FDR was a uh, an, an, an adulterer and um, um, made some very bad decisions, the worst of which was the decision to imprison thousands of Japanese Isi and Nisi, American citizens, uh, in internment camps for the better part of the war. Um, Lincoln escaped most, I think, of the imperfections of the presidency, although in order to govern during a time of war, he suspended habeas corpus. He was a very controversial figure. But on balance, I think crisis opened the door. If the founders were right that the accretion and aggrandizement of power was something to be avoided, then the only thing that would allow a president to wield such power was a crisis of such proportion that nobody could sit it out, that it constituted a real threat to the emerging republic or, or the maintenance or survival of the Republic. And certainly late 18th century governance, hammering out um, the uh, uh, precedents that would, and the institutions that would come to characterize the United States Civil War, Depression, World War II, were those sorts of crises. But that's not enough. Crisis would open the door to a great, to greatness in the presidency. The question then became, did a president have the character and the capacity to know what to do with the crisis, to lead, to keep him himself stable and positive. I mean, Lincoln, for example, was surrounded by death um, in a way that, and he, he clearly, I mean, there's no way to know whether he actually clinically depressed, but by all accounts, um, there was episodic depression. He lost three of his four children, two or two or three of his four children during the time that he was in Washington. Um, and to keep himself motivated and confident that in fact, he and the country could get through the Civil War required an extraordinary degree of character. That was also true of Franklin Roosevelt in overcoming his polio. 
a disease which could have driven him to self-pity and and another sort of paralysis. And yet it humanized him. It made him more sensitive to the needs of a country uh, that, like his own medical condition beginning in the early 1930s during the Great Depression, paralyzed the country. He became a symbol of hope and he never lost faith. Either did the other two in, in the strong possibility that they could guide the American experiment through these crises. So I, I think, again, it's hard for me to imagine, and I have to rethink some of these conclusions, that we could ever see an alignment again of, of crisis character and capacity that would produce the kind of president that would meet, meet the, the hour. Um, it's a... It's a rather depressing thought. I wonder, frankly, given the polarization of our own politics, the tribalization of our politics, the what ran the Rand Corporation Carl's truth decay, the notion that millions of Americans disagree with millions more on the basic facts of a situation, how you would ever arrive at the notion of ever having to regard a president as great or popular. I mean, take COVID, for example. You might have thought that COVID, which was on paper an existential threat to every human in this country, was the kind of nation-encumbering, nation-altering crisis that might have offered a president the possibility of, of greatness in the White House. Now, we'll never know, of course, because COVID coincided sadly, with a president who um, was far too focused on his own well-being, his own politics, his own vanity, uh, to separate himself and to tether the tremendous power and influence he might have had um, to a, a sounder approach to this terrible virus earlier on in, in, in the crisis. It's a thought experiment, I guess, Franz, because we'll never know. We'll never know if um, Mr. or Mrs. X had been president during that, uh, those years, the last four or five years, how the country might have changed. I just think that, and it's a thought experiment, I just think that it would have been, given the political climate, it would have been very difficult for any president to, in the face of this pandemic and the way in which politics has changed in this country, uh, very hard to see another Washington, Lincoln, or FDR. Um, but again, I think that, that search will go on because it's human nature and it it's very hard to persuade people that the country has reached a point where it can never have again a a truly popular or great president. And Aaron, to me, um, at least at this moment in time, it seems to me that, you know, as you mentioned, a crisis presented itself in COVID. And while former President Trump seemed not to have the character to deal with that crisis, I wonder if 
you think he had the capacity to deal with that? Because to me, it seems like the main issue at this moment is that U.S. presidents and polarization prevents them from having the capacity to deal with problems. Is that a, a fair assessment of today's situation? Well, there's a strain within this country, uh, a strain of independence, a strain of anti, uh, anti-authoritarianism. Uh, don't tell me how to behave. Don't impose your mandate. Don't talk to me about comprehensive change. Uh, you know, parents have every right to determine what goes on in a classroom. You've got you've got uh, a side of, of American political culture that has always sought to resist centralized authority. The upside of that is that it 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 produces and can produce a, a degree of creativity. Uh, and it can constrain, uh, you know, true authoritarians in power. The downside, of course, is that it's e- extremely difficult to imagine comprehensive or systemic change if, in fact, a high percentage of the of the country is simply going to to resist it. Um, as far as capacity is concerned, it's no coincidence that. These three presidents, Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, surrounded themselves with with the highest level of an A team. I don't think a president has had as talented advisors um, since these three administrations, and that's critically important. Uh, a president needs to govern, but a, and make decisions, but a president also has to delegate responsibility to talented humans who understand what it is that makes sense and how to how to achieve it and capacity would have been a problem in response to covid but i i think i i think i we would both agree that if in fact you had a dedicated administration who was prepared to defend science to lead by example uh and and, and create Uh, Yes, find a balance. We live in a federal system where the states have enormous influence and control. You're not going to fundamentally change that. But there would have been a way, I think, both through incentive and disincentive and through leading and through public and popular appeal of a charismatic, broad-minded, fair-minded president to basically meet this challenge in in a much better way than we've met it. I mean, we are now, 675,000 Americans died during the great influenza of 1917 to 1920. Uh, We're well past that now. And it's a a true tragedy, it seems to me. And with respect to foreign policy, it raises core questions about America's competence and credibility to the rest of the world. We now live in a glass house, Franz. We always have to a degree, and no nation is perfect, and we've had our imperfections and our transgressions clearly throughout our history. But the notion that it's much harder now for a U.S. president to um, broadcast uh, and praise the nature of our system I think that it ever has been. And that's a real problem because the source of our national power uh, does not lie, uh, it, it lies here at home. It's our 
uh, our economic potential. It's our national resilience. It's our creativity. It's our competency. It's our our entrepreneurial spirit harnessed, um, uh, not just for personal profit uh, and corporate profit, but for humankind as a whole that has always been the inspiration uh, and and the the sort of image that has attracted, you know, millions of people around the world to the American experiment, and to a degree that I have not seen in my lifetime, uh, we are now more exposed, more vulnerable, and less credible abroad, in many of those categories as we once were. And Aaron, the United States is facing national security challenges everywhere it looks. There is a more assertive Russia, a rise in China, the uncertainty of new technology, COVID-19 as we've spoken, the perennial problem of terrorism, and of course climate change, among many other things. At the same time, it feels like the chances, as, as we've talked about, it feels like the, the chances of the three Cs aligning is diminishing every year. So does America need great another great president to address today's problems? And even if it and what, what's your what's your opinion there? Like, or 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 do we or can we pull what we did in the during the Cold War and have a series of good precedents to get get us through this crisis? You know, my conclusion from all this is that we need great we need greatness with a small G. Uh, I think is the term that I use. We need presidents who are good, but not good in the mundane sense. Good in the following, in the following aspects. Good in the sense that they're good at what they do, they're competent, they have experience. And if they don't have a, a lot of experience in governance, then they then they get people, surround themselves with people who, who do. We need good presidents in the sense that they're morally good, that they function within a set of parameters um, that uh, connect them to a large degree with ba basic virtues. Um, And number three, we need good presidents in the sense that they're good and emotionally intelligent. They're able to keep their demons under control, their personal vendettas, their pettiness, by, by and large, um, under, under control as they, as they govern. And I think we can't allow the search for great to be the enemy of the good. My concern, however, is that... Um, The nature of the country, the very essence of self-governance, all the things we've talked about, the polarization, the tribalization, the fact that the polling shows that in answer to the questions, would you mind if your daughter or son married uh, someone of the opposite political party, the numbers are now in double digits where, where as recently as 20 years ago, they were in single digits. Um, we've self-sorted. Uh, we recreate, we live, we work with people who are more or less just like us. There's no overriding sense of national purpose or it's being watered down and lost. I, most, I think, members of the military or at least military planners would, would say to you that wars become too complex uh, and we don't need a draft, that a volunteer military is... Um, is much more suited to the nation's needs. And that may be, 
but there has to be a sense of selflessness, a sense of sacrifice, a sense that Americans are tethered to a narrative, a story uh, broader than themselves in order to make this country work uh, in a way where people can, uh, even if they disagree, they don't turn those those disagreements into a morality play, which pits the forces of goodness on one hand against the forces of darkness or evil on the other. And that's what's happened. And I don't know how you create in such an environment real leadership. Um, it's a huge problem. And we, we lack it in our, in our politics. I mean, greatness, I don't know how many times a day we use that word. She's a great tennis player. I just saw a great movie. He's a great guy. It's lost all meaning. We have no problems appreciating it in theater, uh, in music, on the athletic playing field. No problems understanding and appreciating greatness and ascribing greatness to our, our, our musicians, our actors, and our athletes, our scientists, our entrepreneurs. But when was the last time you heard anyone attach the label great to a president? Well, you know when it is, when it was, with a degree of, of redundancy and frequency. It was the make America great again. But that's not the kind of greatness I'm talking about. And I think there's a... Um, a dearth of, of, of appreciation in large part because in many respects, we've lost a good deal of faith in our political class or alternatively, we've, we've come to reposit and deposit blind faith in, in our politicians. And they, most of the Republican Party, reposited their own political courage and tethering themselves to an individual who is the antithesis of of what I would describe as as greatness in in our presidency, we've fallen a long way, Franz. And uh, while I have not lost faith in the American experiment, because in so many ways the country has improved, in so many ways with respect to the expansion of rights. It just an, as one example, but our political class um, is, we have, we either have too much confidence and are blindly following or not enough confidence. We've lost a sense of balance. And in a democratic polity, uh, balance is, is critically important for accommodating all of the diverse views that exist, tolerating them, not just tolerating them, accepting the legitimacy of diversity and the fact that people are different. You can't have that sort of system. You can't have the big tent, which is what America is. But in order to keep that big tent alive and to accommodate the differences, you have, you've got to cultivate a much different, different sense of civic responsibility 
uh, and politics. Uh, and we're headed in the wrong direction. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Franz, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.